Hi, welcome to the MUSEC interview today with Sylvia Filippini-Santoni. I'm Dana Allen-Greel, Professor of the Internet Strategies course at Johns Hopkins University. And we're joined today by Sylvia, who is Director of Interpretation, Media, and Evaluation at the Indianapolis Museum of Art. We'll be talking with Sylvia about ways that museums can identify and better understand their online users. Um, including the various methods that might be used to conduct that kind of audience research on web visitors. So a very quick background on Sylvia, and I'll have her talk a little bit herself about how she came to her current job. But before joining the IMA, Sylvia worked for well, like over 10 years as a project manager and evaluator for technology-based museum projects and for all kinds of museums, including British Museum, the Getty, the Sauce Pompidou, the Louvre, uh, the Tate Modern, the Met, the Barnes collection. And Sylvia has a PhD in personalization technologies and cultural organizations from Sildan University. So thank you so much for joining us today, Sylvia. It's a pleasure. <laughs> thank you for asking me. Um, yeah. And thank you for this um, short introduction that sort of hopefully will give everybody a sense of um, um, this complex background uh, um, that I then away can bring to the table a little bit. Um, I uh, yes, I did. Um, um, I've been working in a museum for about I would say 10, 12 years now, and I've worked um, from different perspective. On one side, I have worked in actual museums, um, and like the Indianapolis Museum of Art, the British Museum, the Getty, but I've also worked with um, private company working mostly with museums. For instance, I've had an experience at Antenna Audio. Uh, where I was responsible for the development of um, certain new products, uh, particularly for multimedia um, audio guides, and um, also worked for a company called Cogap, which is a web agency that develops projects mostly for a museum. I also have um, a PhD, so I have some academic experience. Um, I did my uh, studies in France um, at Sorbonne University, um, and the focus of my thesis was really the way that um, technology can be used to try to personalize the relationship and the communication with the visitors. And I looked at different examples from various museums, analyzed whether this was successful or not, and presented about it at um, museums on the web conference. There have been a few articles that address um, these issues that you can um, find online. Um, in 2011, I was um, working in London, in, actually in Brighton, um, at COGAP, and I um, was contacted by Rob Stein, who at the time worked here at the Indianapolis Museum of Art, to um, they were restructuring um, um, the um, education department. They wanted it to be more audience-focused, so they wanted to have a person that um, had enough experience in sort of understanding and researching the audience and at the same time knew um, enough about technology that um, she could um, oversee the development of a technology-based project that had sort of engagement, um, wanting to engage our, the museum audience. So they brought me in. Um, as a manager for evaluation and technology-based engagement. And um, since then, obviously, Rob Stein left, uh, Max Anderson left. We have a new director who has strengthened even more the focus on um, visitors and understanding our audience and making that a central part of our uh, development pro exhibition development process. And um, so recently, uh, there has been some further restructuring, and a new department has been created, which is this Department of Interpretation Media Evaluation, which I now direct and oversee. Um, and the objective of the department is really to um, 
you know, work to create a more um, sort of interdepartmental and cooperative process for the um, for for the development of temporary exhibition and installations in our gallery. It's also responsible for you know uh, overseeing the development of content that is for um, technology purpose. So it's content to be distributed on technology platform, but also analog content from you know, labels to didactic, uh, working with the curatorial department on that. Um, we also oversee everything that's to do with video, um, photography, publications, and we also um, have a, a team that really deals with research and evaluation um, of our audience so that these groups can really work together to make sure that whatever we developed in terms of content or experience is really in line with um, you know, our audience, understanding how they think, how they process information, how they engage and enjoy themselves, and try to integrate that into the development of content and experiences. So this is um, kind of what I, what I do and how I got here, where I am now at the IMA. That is uh, such a, a large scope, I think, of the kinds of activities that a museum might undertake. So you said, again, it's media interpretation and evaluation. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, are there, do you know of other institutions that have a similar kind of department that's bringing all of those um, types of activities together under one department? Or do you see that as a sort of trend in other institutions, or do you think the IMA is really paving the way? Um, I've seen different combinations of it. Um, at least there is a tendency, I would say, to bring certain de departments closer under a wider umbrella of audience engagement, so moving a little bit away from sort of the traditional education team and sort of mm -hmm. enlarge it and call it like audience engagement and bring in all the various groups that are involved in the development of experiences and content for the yeah. museum. So my group, my department is actually within a wider umbrella that is called audience engagement and public program, which really deals with, um, you know, it includes public programs, interpretation, media and evaluation, it includes design, it includes curatorial, which is quite new. Um, it includes um, also, um, for example, our um, IT and uh, web um, team. Um, so mm -hmm. there is an effort to try to bring together all the various people that are really responsible for um, creating content and experiences for our audience and sort of have them mm -hmm. work together more closely and more efficiently to avoid the sort of silos or um, sort of experience that sometimes you have. So I'm seeing sort of similar um, attempts, maybe not exactly the same combinations of people working together, but I think there is an, an acknowledgement uh, that, you know, you need to bring these people closer together so that they can work um, better in defining and determining, creating uh, visitor experiences online and on site. Right. And it seems to make so much sense for how to best serve your visitors, which is fantastic. I'll be really curious to follow how this how uh, this goes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, not without pain, but um, you know, it's <laughs> I would say a necessary project process nowadays. Right. right. Um, well, any kind of structural change in an organization has always has its own pain. So it is. Um, so a couple of questions mm -hmm. about kind of the role, I guess specifically of research related to audiences and particularly research related to audiences and their use of digital technologies and how museums can create um, particularly online or web-based media or experiences to meet 
audience needs. So this is obviously an area where you have deep experience in conducting that kind of research. And I'm curious as to what your experience is, and obviously you have a lot of different kinds of experiences with how research projects might have come about, but in your experience, what's the best way to convince museum leadership if they're not already on board? It sounds like in some cases, you've, you've had leaders who were really on board with this, but if you're in an institution where there isn't already a strong research agenda for this area, what do you find is the best way to convince um, those folks that these studies are important and what kinds of resources do museums need in order to get that kind of research off the ground? Yes. I mean, well, one thing is I do have to admit that it does help a lot to have a leadership that is on, on board <laughs> and open to uh, the idea of technology. It's a lot more difficult um, when you operate in a much more sort of conservative, with a, with a much more conservative leadership to kind of um, – have that kind of support, but um, certainly things that uh, we can that can help in terms of convincing the leadership to get on board is really, I would say the first thing is really understanding that technology is here to stay. There's no doubt about it now. Uh, we have evidence of it. It's used on a daily basis um, by people, and actually a lot of them walk into the museum with um, their own um, technology. Um, we have actually included a question in our exit survey, and over 75% of our visitors visit the museums with a smartphone, whether it's an iPhone or it's an, um, an Android. So the fact that people walk in with their own phone, it opens up a lot of different, a lot of devices, sorry, uh, their own devices opens up a lot of um, different possibilities to connect with them, and that is something that, um, you know, it's very important to communicate, and especially if you have a number to back, back, back it up. So it's sometimes as easy as to add a quick question to your exit survey to try to build an argument uh, in favor of uh, pushing forward and supporting technology. Um, it's also um, key to really um, engage particularly younger audiences. There have been a lot of studies um, that have been published out there, so it's kind of easy to do some research online about, you know, younger audiences, um, you know, people that are born more recently, the new generations, they are born with technology, they read technology, they use technology on a daily basis. It's integrated in their school curriculum. So it's really um, a neat a very important ways to in to engage um, these kind of audiences, and in this respect, you can conduct your own studies to prove that. But there's also quite a lot um, of research available out there that support this type of um, theory um, or actual practice, I should say. Um, one other important argument that can help understand the value of technology and convince leadership is really understand the fact that technology can expand. Um, the communication with the visitors beyond the sort of physical audiences that come here. Um, and this is not just simply with, you know, having a website, and which means that a lot of people that cannot physically come to the museum can have access to information regarding your institution and your collection, but also in terms of taking part of the experience away with you after your visit. Um, there are ways in which we can build experiences so that people can kind of continue what they do after their visit. And this is something that obviously um, it can be a, an interesting hook for a, sort of a leadership to convince them to invest in this type of um, technology. So that's, I would say these are sort of good, good um, arguments that one can, can present to leadership to, to convince them. Um, in terms and of... So then it, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Oh, I was, yeah, I was, I guess the follow-up to that is then, okay, they're on board, they want to do this kind of research and they're interested in making sure that the technology that is 
created by the museum or used by the museum is actually meeting user needs and that they're satisfied. So you're ready to do some research. What kinds of resources do museums need in order to conduct these kinds of studies? And obviously there's a range from, I don't know, quick and dirty and cheap <laughs> to very intensive involving outside evaluators, et cetera, um, you know, yeah. longer term studies. I mean, one one thing there, just going back a little bit, backtracking for a second, I mean, technology, we can't hide it, it's expensive, can be expensive, it changes a lot, so it requires sort of, um, it changes quickly, so it requires that, um, you know, we... Um, um, updated relatively frequently. Uh, we have to re rebuild and restructure things. So one of the things that really um, is important and fundamental is to understand why people are using it and how people are, are using it so that, you know, we make sure that we don't invest a huge amount of money into something that is then not really, you know, it doesn't support a specific need or it's not as easy to use for our audience. So one argument that it's kind of useful there both to support the development and technology museum but also to support the need for research and evaluation is really um, underlying the importance that is to do research not only um, when projects are implemented to really again understand how people use use them but also really during the development process um, so that um, you know, we can fine tune them. We can one of what we can kind of tweak them in a way that it, they're easier for people to use. This is one of the greatest advantage of technology is that it's so much easier than when you have to deal with a print piece or anything else that you build or design in the space or in a gallery. That you can kind of test various prototype very quickly, and then you can change either the content or the structure in a relatively quickly way, a quick way. So um, I think there is um, one one aspect. This aspect is sort of very important to to sort of understand line to your leadership that, you know, it is important to do a research and evaluation on how people are using it if it's easier for them to use it because obviously technology involves a certain kind of expenses. So it is important to guarantee that people, um, that this is something that people can use easily, they can understand easily. So that's a, sort of an, an interesting argument that can be made. Now, in terms of what are the tools available out there um, for this, well, one thing is... Um, important I would say before I even starting doing research on online um, for our, and to better understand our only online audiences we really needed to set up a team in the institution that um, was completely dedicated to audience research and evaluation. When I was here, um, when I came here first, there was only a person that was only uh, part-time on research and evaluation, and she was mostly working on grants, and then half of her time she was um, managing um, the um, internship program. So there wasn't all, there weren't a lot of resources dedicated to this. Bringing me in um, and also a restructuring allowed her to be full-time and me sort of part-time working on that and part-time working on technology development helped, you know, create a stronger team. Um, we started doing a lot more research about our actual physical visitors, and then we got buy-in from different departments in the museum who then asked us to do further research for them, and that created the ground for us to request more funding for this in the next fiscal year. We were able to hire a contractor um, externally um, 
we were able to, um, you know, um, hire a number of uh, temporary staff to help with data collection and data analysis. So now we have a team of about, um, we have one full-time person I am still helping. Um, we have um, four um, research associates that collect data. We have one person dedicated to help us doing data analysis, and then we have two, three contractors that we work with externally to help us with projects. So now we do have really, like, an infrastructure in place that allows us to dedicate um, our resources to um, research and evaluation. And within this framework, we were able to build a case for understanding our online audience better. You know, we have the majority of our visitors come through the website, mm -hmm. and uh, we don't know very little about them. Obviously, we have tools like Google Analytics that can help understand a little bit about who these people are. Um, and how they use their site, but very minimally, and more about their behavior rather than who these people are. And then we also um, do a lot of um, online surveys, um, which um, help um, understand our audience better, especially from the point of view of the demographic and psychographic information, which Google Analytics is not as good as um, at giving us. And um, both of these tools are relatively inexpensive if you want to. Um, Google Analytics is, is, not ex is, is free. And as online surveys, we do use SurveyMonkey um, for this. It's pretty basic. It's not very expensive. We pay about $300 um, a year, and it's really we use it a lot for all sorts of um, um, online studies. We as an institution also created a sort of a hybrid model that really merges Google Analytics with um, online surveys. We do these one-question surveys on our website sometimes where we ask only one question to optimize the kind of response that we get. Usually when you have a long survey, you don't get a lot of responses because people just you know, don't even click on it or when they look at the number of questions, they just say, no, I don't want to do it. When you ask one quick question and then um, people are more likely to respond if the question is not like you know, completely you know, either too personal or something. And then what we do, we have our um, IMA lab, as, which is our technology department, has created a piece of code that will link whatever answer they provide to the question with Google Analytics, and then we analyze behavior based on the response that people give. And we've used this method to really understand a little bit um, the, who our online audience is. That's a great segue to my next question, which is about the, the we've read through your um, 2012 Museums on the Web publication about some of the research that you did on visitor motivation for the IMA website, and in that you talk a little bit about this, um, both the one question model and also how you have tried to tie Google Analytics to those questions to get a better understanding of behavior and tying that to what people's stated motivation is. What um, I guess two things. One, you could highlight maybe one or two things that really potentially surprised you about that, the findings, but mm -hmm. I'm even more interested in how those findings directly relate to any changes you've then made to the website or to how you think about your digital program um, you know, in response sorry, to what Can you, you say that again, the last thing? Sorry. <laughs> oh, sure. So, so in terms of the findings, what did you find that then led to some kind of change or new initiative with the website that was directly related to what you found? You know, did you change the navigation or are you yeah. rethinking how the next project that you do based mm -hmm. on what you've learned? Yes. Um, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, we did um, the study that you're mentioning is a study that we did in, um, I would say, if I remember correctly off the top of my head, December 2011. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, it was really like, 
at the time, we were really looking at on-site motivation. So we were looking, particularly we work with the John Falk model, I don't know, motivation model, are you familiar mm -hmm. with it? Mm -hmm. And uh, so yeah. we were thinking, okay, so if, uh, if according to John, motivation is such an important factor in determining how people behave on-site and what they learn and what they do and where they go, like is motivation very important, um, you know, is equally important when it comes to our online visitors? And can we use the same category as, you know, the folk model or is it a, are, are there different motivational uh, categories? So we um, we had this question in mind, and so we we um, the first thing we did was like, okay, let's kind of understand why people are coming to our website. So the first thing we did was just ask a very one question, open-ended question: What is your main reserve for for visiting the website today? And then we collected all the answers, and then we tr looked at them and we see whether they could be like Mac, Mac, um, sort of. Um, they could be associated with the folk motivation, and we realized that they, it wasn't possible to do that association. Essentially because while uh, visiting a museum physically is more sort of, a, of an experience-based um, experience, if you want to, um, going online it's really an information-based experience, so I think that that's why it wasn't possible to sort of have that parallel. But we did find some, some sort of interesting motivations that were kind of constant in the answer. Um, most people were here to plan a visit, were coming to the museum website to plan a visit, to search for information. Some of them were forced personal reasons, they were looking for, you know, they had a hobby for something and they were looking for something that interests them to find locations for their um, wedding or, um, you know, just um, information of this kind. And some people were just most specifically for professional reasons, sort of I'm looking for something specific to my work. Some people were just casually browsing the site without any specific purpose. They would come back occasionally to the site and see what, what was going on. And then finally, a last group of people that were in the website to do sort of transaction, um, whether it was purchasing a membership or a um, or purchasing a ticket for an event or for an exhibition. Um, the next step that we did is that once we had these categories, we re-asked the question again as one question survey. And then, as I said before, we tracked the behavior on um, their behavior online um, using this Google piece of code that was developed in Google Analytics. And that's when we started kind of look, finding some interesting differences in terms of you know the time that people spent based on the motivation, the number of pages that they were looking at, the type of content, and where they came from in terms of traffic, depending on the motivation. One thing that really, really, really stood out um, as a result of this um, sort of study was that transaction seemed to be really taking a very, very long time. I would say, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I would say an average of 14 to 15 minutes per transaction. And we didn't know whether that was because, well, that's the nature of transaction. You have to first look what you want and then, you know, sort of go through the process or, you know, maybe change your mind, go back, look at it again. Or is it something wrong with our a sort of website? Um, so we did a next step after that. We said, okay, well, we need to understand what the problem, if there is a problem here, or if it's normal. So we did again a one-question survey, but this time we asked them satisfaction about like how easy was it for them to carry out that um, 
that you know the, the what they came to do on the website, whether it was planning a visit or transaction or searching for something. And that's when we really realized that transaction was was really problematic. People could not get through the process. They found it really cumbersome and convoluted. Another problem that came out was really um, searching for something. I think there were particular challenges. We have different locations here on campus, and we have another building in another city, which is about an hour drive away. So the information was spread amongst two different sections of the site, and people were really, really confused about that and where to find these kind of information. So we, um, after that, we did a sort of a refresh of our website. Um, we changed a little bit the design and information architecture to try to resolve these problems. So we divided sort of, we decided to divide um, the amount, the, the, the changes in two different phases. So in phase one, we really addressed um, issues related with our information architecture, and so we. Um, made a few changes. We consolidated all the content about our locations and visiting information in one section so that people wouldn't have to kind of like go and look for them in various areas. We restructure the top menu in a way that we put close to each other the sections that people seem to visit together as a result of the motivation that they that they came why they came why they came to the website. We also renamed some of the sections so that we used terms that were um a little bit more user-friendly because people seem to have um, difficulty understanding those things. Another thing that we did, we um, cross-referenced a lot more um, different sections. So if in the visit section we wanted people to, even though they were planning their visit, try to find as much, uh, try to get them to the collection and exhibition sections of the site. So we did a lot of cross-promotions between sections to try to get people to go from one site to the other of the website and not stay within that that. Um, um, section of the menu. We also realized that we had a lot of inconsistency in the way that pages were structured. So we made a clear distinction between what we call landing pages and content pages. So the pages that were kind of pages that lead to other pages, we tried to structure them in a very similar way so that people would kind of become familiar with them and know how to use them. And then we would get content pages that are at the end of the path, um, looking more similarly to each other, so that people start becoming familiar with the way that people kind of access and navigate the site. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that we did, we, we, we were going, in the previous version of the site, we were going very deep in our navigation, and we decided to make that a lot um, less deep because um, we, um, wanted to, we did a, a responsive design, so we wanted the entire content to be accessible on a mobile device as well. And uh, mm -hmm. we wanted to, when you go very deep, you tend to get lost on a mobile device more easily mm -hmm. than when you are on a desktop computer or a laptop. So we wanted to avoid like going too deep into four or fifth level of organization of navigation. We kept it mostly at level three. So these are kind of some of the changes that we made to the structure of the site. And we also um, made another change to the transaction process. So we eliminated a lot of the steps um, to try to reduce the length of um, of our transactions um, on the website uh, because obviously that was a really a problem and it was a very convoluted mechanism which we have uh, further simplified within obviously the, the what is possible given the limitation of the system that we're currently using and yes. um, we are going to a second phase now um, hopefully this year um, where we're gonna do the other changes um, we are doing making some changes to the calendar to simplify it, and uh, next we're going to address the general search on the website, which was 
problematic as a result of that study, and then we're addressing some changes within the collection and the collection search as well. Great. Um, I'm going to ask a quick follow-up. We mm -hmm. have talked a little bit in our class discussions about terminology, and um, when you mentioned information architecture and that you renamed some sections of the site, um, to be more clear, I'm curious if you could um, give us a specific example, if you can recall one. For yeah, example, me... we discussed the, the issue of collections versus exhibitions. Yeah. and whether or not the general public understands the difference between those two things. That's true. And I, actually, on this one, I am a little torn. Um, we actually had art before, um, which probably was better and was a more user-friendly uh, terminology. However, the problem with that um, was that um, exhibitions were extremely buried in our navigation. And uh, so we had to make a call whether we wanted to kind of make something more visible. Uh, rather than make something um, in that respect um, probably more accessible in terms of terminology. It was a long, long discussion, and not everybody agreed um, mm -hmm. on this choice. But from a marketing perspective, unfortunately, well, I don't say unfortunately, I actually supported partially that decision. Um, there was a need to bring exhibition um, to sort of um, – I higher level, we unfortunately, well, fortunately, actually, are a free exhibit, a museum uh, with free admission to the public. Most of the, um, um, we, we charge admission for our exhibitions, so this is one of our, um, you know, important source of revenue. So there was a institutional need to try to make that more um, easily accessible and visible on the website. So um, that... Um, Notion prevailed over um, the uh, maybe um, need for a more user-friendly um, um, terminology. Um, the reason why I kind of felt that personally it was okay was that I did notice that um, not many people that were coming to plan the uh, their visit were actually visiting the art section. So mm -hmm. what we've been trying to do is try to get people um, with promos uh, from the visit to the art or collection or exhibition section in a sort of transversal way. But we didn't notice that even when people, at, when they had art as a tab, there was not a lot of cross-visiting between visit and art. So we felt that art was a section that was mostly visited by um, professionals, and they would still be familiar with the word collection and then try to kind of use the word art and bring it towards the collection and exhibition section within specific pages of the visit section. That's kind of was the compromise that we we got to. As you know, unfortunately, at the end, it's always a compromise <laughs> between institutional sure. needs and um, visitors' need. But we felt it was okay for that reason that I just mentioned, that um, people that were looking for specific reasons, for pro specific information for professional reasons, were really visiting the art section of the site, while the people mm -hmm. planning a visit were mostly visiting the visit and about section of the site. Right. Interesting. So we do have two students that are listening in on the call, and I want to go ahead and make sure that we get them, um, allow them to ask any questions that they have of you, so I'm not hogging the conversation. So Soli or Jennifer, if you want to jump in with any questions you have so far. Uh-oh. Okay. Let me transfer 
Um, I oh. did. Hi, this is Soli. Hi, um, we I, can hear you. I did have a question um, regarding your policy or how you've dealt with the bring your own device issue. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, with the with the audience, we recently the museum where I work recently acquired um, audio guide units. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, just as we acquired them, the issue came about that the trend is leaning towards everybody bringing their own device. Mm-hmm. And even if that they incur in using their minutes, maybe just for hygienic purposes, they prefer their own device mm-hmm. instead of using something provided by the museum. Um, do you have any experience with this, or what criteria did, did your museum use? When yeah, deciding, which is we're better? we're actually um, collecting some data at the moment because um, we do not offer yet as an let's call it audio guide. Um, for our permanent collection, but we do have offer um, one, one well for our temporary exhibition, and then we have one for our gardens and for our um, Lily House, which is which is a which is a historical property that it's on on our campus, which was built in the early 20th century. Um, it's kind of um, it's an interesting thing because I'm I don't have like sufficient data yet to back this up, but this is kind of where my feeling is. Um, the um, the um even though seven, over 70% of our visitors do come to the museum with their own mobile devices and we do see that the trend is increasing we see a higher percentage of people accessing our website on a mobile device that's growing constantly i don't think necessarily um everybody is ready yet to kind of take out their phone and just use it um i um for um our multimedia guide all the time we um I do feel that the people that traditionally take audio guides are maybe slightly older audiences that are not um, necessarily coming to the museum with their with their smartphone, or they don't feel comfortable if they have it, use it for that specific purpose. Um, so we do feel that it's still important to provide a number of rented devices for a while, and then also provide the option for people to access it with their own phone uh, or with their own device, and then have both options available, and then. You know, this would give um, you know maximum coverage in sort of both circumstances, and this is kind of what we do now. Um, we do offer a number of devices. We offer them for free, so people don't pay for them, but they can pick up their own. Um, they can use their own device and access um, a link or access a URL on their phone, or they can um, rent one from um, our welcome desk, for instance, at Lily House. And um, and at the moment, we are collecting data on whether people use their own devices and why and whether they rented one and why. I have not analyzed the data yet fully, but uh, anecdotal feedback that I'm getting from people at the desk is that even if people have their own phone, they don't actually mind getting one, especially if it's for free. At the desk, they just feel like, well, it's, yeah, I'd rather have the one that I can, that I can rent um, here. So um, at the moment, as an institution, we do feel that we still need to provide um, both options. Uh, it might be that in a couple of years uh, we will review this policy, but we, um, at the moment, and for the upcoming exhibitions and for the permanent collection, we will provide both. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, as a follow up to Soli's question, yeah. I was kind of wondering 
uh, how do you have the security for using those phones? Like, how do you know if you get them back or not? Or yeah, that sounds so kind of bad to say, no, but we, yes, no, we actually rent out i and iPod touches, not like ours are iPod touches, and then people can use their own phone. We ask for a piece of ID. Um, at the beginning, okay. and then they uh, will return it to them when they um, when they're about to leave. Ah, okay, awesome. So this is as Thank simple you. as it's as simple as that. There are more sophisticated oh, okay. ways, but frankly, this is you know this has been working for a while, and we. That sounds pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. I've also um, seen that used in other museums as well. The the exchange for and photo ID. And then they'll give you the audio tour or the the audio equipment, and then you yeah. can use that. Also, in our case, we are trying to encourage the bilingual issue. Mm-hmm. Of course. Because mm-hmm. because in in Puerto Rico, the main language is Spanish, mm-hmm. but of course most of our tourists, they will their predominant language is English. Is English. So we're trying we're trying to get that going as well, and I think. That was one of the questions that we had when faced with the option of getting the audio tour. Um, I don't know how many, um, I don't know if the Indianapolis Museum has this issue, the whole bilingual thing. Not for, we only had it in one situation. I wasn't here at the time, but we did have an exhibition called Sacred Spain, and in that case, we did provide content mm-hmm. both in English and in um, and in Spanish. Um, it's um, we don't have um, you know, I mean there is it's not a there's not a very high um, sort of um, um, Latino population in Indianapolis. It is actually growing, and we see it growing as our visitors, so we might consider that in the future. Um, so far, um, there have not been specific complaints about not having any of our content in a different language, but given sort of the switching, uh, or the changing demographics of, of this region, we might very well in the future do it. The advantage that we have is that actually and I'm going to do a little promotion here. I'm sorry uh, to do this, but um, the IMA has developed um, IMA Lab in particular, which is our sort of technical department. They have developed a um, software, an open source software, which actually is available for other museums, which is called Tourmoil, and two different ones actually. One is called Tourmoil, and one is, Tour, is called Tap, which really allows visit museums to create their own like multimedia guide using this sort of free open source software. And this is something that we use internally for all of our um, multimedia projects, both for iPad as well as for mobile devices, um, smartphones, or iPod, iPod touches. And this system is, supports a multilingual content. So um, it's set up in such a way that if um, you could have your first screen to be picked the language that you want the tour in, and then you just delve into the more specific content. So this is a functionality that even if we don't use at the moment, it's built into the um, specification of the software, so it allows other museums to use it. Yes, this is something that the rest of the museum community is so thankful to IMA for, which is that TAP is one example, but I know that there are other examples where you've developed code and you've made it open to the whole museum community to use, and then as improvements are made, we can all benefit. I would also solely let you know that um, I want to take a look at the National Gallery of Art has an app as well, which is called Your Art. Um, which is available right now just for iPhone and iPod, um, but will be available for Android soonish. Um, and that is available in five languages. So it's both the text content and the audio content is available in multiple languages. 
basically based on which um, language you're using when you go through the Apple Store to download um, the app, and then yeah. which language you have turned on on your phone, it will give you that language. So you might want to check that out as an example. And just so you know, that is built um, uh, that is built using a company called Justin Interactive, which was just recently purchased by Acoustic Guide, which is mm -hmm. a pretty common vendor that's used. So that's another, that's not open source, that's a paid um, partnership that you would have to have, but they also have built a way for you to have multilingual content that kind of just based on the user preferences will show um, the correct language. Okay. Great. Thank you. So I, we're, we're running out of time. So I'm going to skip ahead a little bit mm -hmm. to a question that I have about I think it's often easier for people to understand and visualize in terms of staff the, um, to visualize the visitor who comes to the museum and it's sometimes harder for them to have a good understanding of this huge additional audience, which obviously there is some overlap between your, your building visitors and your online visitors. Mm -hmm. um, but I noticed in some of your um, research that you've got a little over double online visitation versus in your building. Yeah. And so I'm curious about, well, one, how much do you know about what overlap there is? And then two, how do you help staff and people working on projects in the museum visualize those audiences that aren't physically in front of them? Okay, well, let's start with the first um, question. So um, we've actually recently done um, a second study um, um, following the motivation study of 2012 that is discussed within the Museums on the Web um, paper that you mentioned before. We did another follow-up study where we kind of tested. Um, we, the first time we tested the motivation only, and the second time we decided to test through a series of one-question survey. Other variables, um, like it's age, like age, gender, um, residence, place of residence, place of access to the website, social context of sort of accessing the website, and we did a comparison with our physical visitors. So it was interesting to kind of see and compare whether our online visitors were somewhat different different from our physical visitors. And to be honest, and I was really surprised, but we didn't find that many differences. Most of the differences mm -hmm. that we found were in terms of age. So we found that online audiences were um, younger than our physical audience, which is kind of to be, which is to be expected in certain ways. Um, we found a huge difference in the social context. While our physical museum visitors come uh, mostly with another person or even a group of person to the museum, um, online visitation is mostly done by a single person on, a, on, on their own. And then we did notice some difference, even though not as important when it comes to place of residence, so where people live when they access our website. Obviously, the website tends to attract a much wider um, international audience than our physical museum does. But besides these three aspects, there were, you know, in terms of gender, um, ethnicity, uh, level of education, um, there weren't a lot of, like, familiarity with frequency of visit to the museum. There weren't a lot of differences between our um, online visitors and on-site visitors. So I think mm -hmm. this was, um, I was pretty surprised. I was expecting maybe a few more um, differences. So this is sort of something that we have um, sort of researched um, recently. Now, in terms of visualizing and uh, uh, visitors um, to um, our website and how sort of we work with that internally. I have to be honest with you that my experience, at least in this museum, has been such that I actually find it more challenging to find ways 
for people to visualize our physical visitors than our online visitors. Mm. Um, oh. The website is actually managed by um, marketing here in the museum, and they do have, mm -hmm. I have to admit, they do have a more in instinctive in a way by training a better understanding of segmentation and audience and audience segmentation so mm -hmm. I have I think they have a lot more of an intuitive understanding of sort of how our online audiences um, wasn't surprised but in the study that I just mentioned before we were able to identify sort of how different variables um, affect the way that people interact with the site and in the responses that we got there weren't huge surprises like there was nothing there that was like very surprising about the way people engage with our website based on either the reason for visiting where they access from um, whether they're alone or with other people whether you know they come for one motivation or the other there weren't like they, they were interesting results but nothing was like oh my god very surprising so right. I would say that marketing as a sort of a fairly sort of in good understanding of our our visitors at least at a very intuitive in a very intuitive way we did we have used personas in the past not in the development of the current website because we worked on this motivation model without developing full personas for this motivation but in the past mm -hmm. versions of the website I know they've worked with companies and really developed personas and try to kind of think of those uh, people when when developing um, this the website we try when possible to do user testing as well to try to make sure that we have you know um sort of keep 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 touch with in touch with reality when we are developing something something new mm -hmm. um sometimes there is a little bit of a challenge um from designers sometimes where the the hope is maybe um, to have something that looks better prevail over something that is very functional, <laughs> more functional. Mm -hmm. But um, so that's probably the sort of hardest fight sometimes that you have to, um, to, um, to, you know, to, 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 well, the rest of the things that you have to fight. But I would say that in overall, um, because our website is managed by marketing, there is a built into their training um, and their education, there is kind of an understanding of audience and segmentation and personas that is um, positive. I would say that the biggest challenges that I personally have encountered is to really understand our physical audience mm -hmm. and particularly working with curators to try to kind of understand that the content that they're working on and creating and their experiences that they are created, creating are really meant for people that think differently, process information differently, um, what are those differences and kind of what type of visitors do, do we have? That has been definitely more challenging, mm. as well as, in a way, um, really understand one of, the, one of the challenges that I um, think is sort of interesting, and I don't know if I have an answer to that, but I noticed that there is, tends to be a discrepancy between um, visitors' models for the mar for marketing purposes and visitors models for engagement or interpretation purposes and i'm not sure whether there is a model that can be used in both contexts or whether you know inevitably we have to have two separate models so mm -hmm. so far this is a little bit what i'm i've been struggling with you know we try as much as possible to use the folk as a reference uh, mm -hmm. for our interpretation planning, but, um, you know, uh, there has been some challenges to have marketing sort of adopt a very similar model for various reasons. So I, I think at the moment this is kind of what I'm, what I'm seeing, so it would be interesting to see if other institutions are encountering sort of similar issues.
with that. What model is the marketing department using? Are they pretty much focused on demographics or? Yeah, they, they do. Yeah, they do. Well, it's a combination of things. You know, um, they do. They use demo, demographic, and also I think the interesting thing about Falk is really about advertising the type of experiences that people have rather than advertising our programming or exhibitions. Mm -hmm. So I think that I think marketing is still. Um, operates within the assumption that you know they are still working on programming and exhibition um, rather than sort of promoting experiences, mm -hmm. and uh, so mm -hmm. I think that's kind of an interesting um, difference. And I, I'm not sure that we can we will be able to find a sort of a compromise uh, to that. And I I just wonder what it does when we internally develop certain type of experiences according to certain criteria, and when those experiences are not marketed. Um, as such, <laughs> to the outside world. Yeah, so, that's, that's very interesting. I, I, yeah, I, this is like a dilemma that I, um, I, I, find, I face. We're facing. We're faced with now, and I'm kind of interesting to sort of to see how, how it is, how it evolves. I think that marketing and experience is also a lot more sort of long term than maybe marketing something that is like a, an event or something that's happening. So mm -hmm. sort of how maybe to combine the two. Um, I, I don't know. I think we're still kind of looking into that and, and kind of find our way. Um, yeah, uh, I'm curious. I mean, this is a little off topic with, with mm -hmm. uh, you know, websites. But um, I, I've been recently having very similar conversations about marketing and the role of marketing. And I'm curious, how much do you involve the marketing staff from the beginning of the development of an experience or an idea for interpretation? Or, or do they kind of come in at the end and then are expected to market as opposed to being involved um, in a three to process? It, it depends. Um, we, it depends whether the experience is technology-based or not, and that it depends really about our uh, on our structure. Um, marketing mm. is not part of our core team, uh, exhibition development core team. Um, mm -hmm. They are... And that's kind of the team that works together to try to um, um, to develop an exhibition, and it includes interpretation staff, evaluation staff, um, curators, um, designers. Um, it doesn't involve marketing so far, but it's fairly new, mm -hmm. so we might kind of open that, mm -hmm. you know, in the future. Yeah. Um, they are then, you know, so we have these like core team meetings and the initial stages of the process and throughout the entire process, and then we have wider meetings with. Um, are, are that include the marketing uh, department. Right. I right. do work with marketing closely because of the evaluation aspect of things. Um, mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, maybe an anomaly in a way that it's typical of the IMA because I work with them, for instance, when we have exhibition ideas, we do test them with visitors. So we work mm -hmm. with marketing to refine the to work to, to kind of define these ideas and test them with visitors. I work with marketing for testing titles of exhibitions. So Right. Through me and my role in this department and our kind of evaluation um, group, we actually at, end up kind of working closely, but more on um, sort of testing and concept rather than just um, – we sometimes tested visuals for uh, the marketing campaign with visitors. Mm -hmm. So we do get involved at sort of this level, but not completely integrated into the exhibition core team at this right. stage. Right. I mean, it sounds like you've already got a lot of people involved in the team, and I totally get having the, the core team. It's just something I've been thinking about, you know, if marketing really is most effective if it's involved from the you know, concept and product idea, um, that that we might do. help them better understand the yeah. model that you're working with. So, 
anyway, there's something. The one other about. advantage, sorry, one more thing. The another advantage is that um, actually uh, we have a team called the digital production team, and uh, mm -hmm. basically it's a team that groups sort of the three areas in the museum that deal with technology, which is. My, myself, representing interpretation, media, and evaluation, because obviously we do develop technology-based ideas for the galleries, marketing mm -hmm. who deals with the website, and then our IMA lab. So we do meet once mm -hmm. a week. So for digital technology, we do have those conversations. Marketing, marketing gets involved a lot more because they are part of this conversation from the beginning, and we meet regularly about these things. Mm -hmm. But with exhibition, it's still a little looser, so it might mm -hmm. kind of require some adjustments. That's so interesting. Great. Well, um, I'm just going to ask if Jennifer and Sully have any additional questions for you before we hang up. Not from my end. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome. Not from me either. Thank you so much. No problem. It's been a pleasure. Okay. So before I let you go, <laughs> what's the one thing that's coming in the next, I don't know, one to two years? Uh, that has to do with IMA and the web that you're excited about or really kind of keen on learning more about? Yeah, I mean, generally there's been a shift um, with the new director, really a focus on physical audience. Um, I would say that previously we had more of a focus on our online audience, but I think there has been a, um, like a, a shift towards trying to sort of, you know, think a little bit more about our physical audience who comes through here and serve them better and try to get more people through the doors. Um, mm -hmm. So there have been, there are, there are a few initiatives that we have, you know, we're waiting for responses. We're applying for funding. So I keep my fingers crossed, but um, mm -hmm. I, and I can't divulge too much information, but we mm -hmm. have, um, um, we are hoping to do a lot more um, technologies um, in the galleries to engage our, our audience physically. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I'm hoping um, which will probably sort of link everything together to do. Um, I'm particularly interested in design thinking strategy and this, the design thinking approach, which is really mm -hmm. sort of building on our experience of trying to uh, involve the visitors in the development process of something and mm -hmm. maximizing it to um, its full potential by, by really testing this design thinking approach, which really puts the visitor at the center of the development process of, of an exhibition. So we have applied for some funding, um, and we're waiting for, uh, for a response. But if that's possible, I'm hoping to bring in a design thinking facilitator that facilitates um, initial workshops with various departments uh, within the museums or representatives of every de department so that we can kind of brainstorm together but also like talk to visitors together and sort of understand and test ideas right away create quick prototypes and then, you know, identify what, what we feel is, you know, is better for the visitors and then develop it through user-centered design. So I'm hoping that we could, we can get some funding to really um, become, make our user-centered, other user experience even better and uh, our user-centric approach even stronger. Well, I wish you the best of luck with getting that um, funding and, and for for those of you listening, if you're not familiar with design thinking, I highly recommend checking out designthinkingformuseums.net, which is run by Dana Mishas Silvers and talks a lot about how design thinking can work in museums. So thanks again so much for joining us today. This has been super useful and um, really interesting. So thank you for your time. No problem. And if you have any um, further questions, don't hesitate to um, contact me. Great.
Thank you.